Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, your host, and a clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For today's episode, we welcome Lisa Willems from our product management team at Mayo Clinic Laboratories for a test and focus interview. Thank you for the introduction, Dr. Pritt. Today we'll be discussing a new test for Mayo Clinic, the serotonin release assay. And before we delve into the test itself, we have with us Dr. Rajiv Pruthi from our special coagulation lab. He is one of the directors of the laboratory that performs this test. And he is also one of the team members who oversaw the development and validation of the essay. Dr. Pruthi, before we get started today, would you please provide a bit about yourself and your time here at Mayo Clinic? Thank you very much, Lisa, for that introduction. So my name is Rajiv Pruthi, and I'm a board-certified hematologist. My practice is solely focused on coagulation disorders, both bleeding and thrombosis. And I have been directing this special COAG lab for quite a few years now. And it's really been exciting and interesting and challenging to work with the special coagulation lab team. Our whole focus is to try to develop and offer clinically important tests that make a big difference in patients' lives. And of those tests, the serotonin release assay has been a real challenge, but we're glad to see it come to fruition for all the, the validation efforts. Thank you, Dr. Pruthi. As you develop the essay, can you give us a brief overview of it and how it works? As a background, the assay is meant to help in the diagnosis of a rare condition called a heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So I'll give you a bit of background on that condition first. Heparin is a blood thinner. Every year, millions of patients get exposed to heparin while they're hospitalized. Heparin can be administered in small doses called prophylactic doses, or even in therapeutic doses, so that those are higher doses for the treatment of blood clots. And that could be venous thrombosis or arterial thrombosis. But heparin is also used during major surgeries like coronary bypass grafting. The point is that heparin is a very commonly used drug. The most common complication, which fortunately is rare, is bleeding. However, extremely rarely, one or 2% of people who are exposed to heparin develop thrombosis and thrombocytopenia, hence the term heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. It's a challenge to diagnose, and for many years, there weren't good validated tests, and we relied on clinical circumstances and clinical analytics to try to come up with a tentative diagnosis. The reason it's important, heparin is actually resulting in an immune response that paradoxically results in thrombosis. And that can be a very serious event. Therefore, you need to recognize it, stop the heparin, and start what we call a non-heparin anticoagulant. The diagnostic pathway for making the diagnosis of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is very clinically based because you have to make your decisions on therapeutic intervention based on the clinical presentation. So Dr. Theodore Warkenton many years ago proposed a clinical scoring system that's fondly known as 4T system 
Dr. Warkenton's first name is Theodore, so he, he went mm -hmm. with a 4T score. And that has to do with the timing of onset of thrombocytopenia, so that generally between day five and day 10 to 14 of heparin exposure, the degree of thrombocytopenia, so generally 50% or greater from baseline, the platelet count declines, patients may or may not have thrombosis, and more importantly, you have to exclude other causes for thrombocytopenia. So there's a whole variety of reasons a patient could be thrombocytopenic, ranging from sepsis to other drugs like antibiotics. It's a very useful clinical tool because if you have what we call a low score, in other words, if the patient has a low likelihood of clinical likelihood of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which I'm going to refer to as HIT, then the negative predictive value is extremely high. So you won't need to do any clinical testing and you don't need to change your heparin management. But if you come up with a score that falls into the intermediate or high risk range, then it's potentially a serious event. So you need to make some clinical decisions. And generally that is you order the lab testing and then you have to stop the heparin. And depending on the patient clinical circumstance, you may need to start an alternative anticoagulant, generally a direct thrombin inhibitor, and that's an intravenous drug. You can have an intermediate or high score for HIT, and generally the first test that's more widely available is an ELISA-based test that detects presence of IgG antibodies against the heparin platelet factor IV complex. There are other more rapid immunoassays or particle gel-based immunoassays as well. Every assay has its own limitations. And if the test is negative, that gives you a reasonable degree of what we call a high negative predictive value. But if it's positive, that's where you run into the situation where you have to ask yourself, well, this patient's serum has the antibody, but is it what we call a pathogenic antibody? Is it causing the HIT process? And that's where the serotonin release assay comes in. It's the gold standard diagnostic test for detection of clinically relevant pathogenic HIT antibodies. Fantastic, Dr. Pruthi. Thank you for that. Now, you had mentioned the serotonin release assay is utilized within day five or 14 of heparin exposure. Is there subsequent time that that would be utilized or outside of that framework that this test would be utilized? That's a really good question. What I'll do is address the different types of HIT presentation. The classical presentation is development of thrombocytopenia with or without thrombosis between day five and 14. But there are times that you can have delayed HIT. So in other words, the patient's in the hospital, gets exposed to heparin, gets dismissed from the hospital, and then comes back within four weeks with thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. And you do the test, the HIT ELISA test may be positive, but that is another circumstance where you could use or probably should use the serotonin release assay to confirm that the antibodies you're seeing are indeed pathogenic HIT antibodies. There's another circumstance which is called rapid onset of HIT. So this is where thrombocytopenia and thrombosis can occur before day five. Now, generally this happens in patients who have been previously exposed to heparin. So they may have pre-existing circulating HIT antibodies. And generally the heparin exposure occurs about three months prior to their current presentation. 
And when you re-expose them to heparin, you could develop a rapid onset of HIT. So that might be another circumstance where you want to confirm that the antibody you're finding is indeed pathogenic. Extremely rarely, there are cases of what we're calling spontaneous HIT or autoimmune HIT. These are, again, situations that Dr. Worken described in which patients present with a HIT-like syndrome, but they have not been exposed to heparin. It gets to be a very complex disease to handle. But again, you rely on the clinical presentation and then detecting presence of the serotonin release assay. Now, how does this assay help you? As I mentioned, the most commonly available test is the test that detect IgG antibodies against heparin platelet factor IV complexes. But the ELISA assays provide you with a number called optical density. Now, that gives you an idea of the strength or the intensity of or the quantity of the antibody, putting it extremely simply. But let's say you have a patient with an optical density with the ELISA assay of less than one, less than 0.4 is normal, but if you have a result between 0.4 and one, that's a reasonably low titer. What's the likelihood that that antibody is pathogenic? Well, you know, Dr. Warkenton has published that there's a approximately 50% chance that that antibody is pathogenic, and that's where the serotonin release assay will help you. Once you get between optical density of one and two, there's a higher likelihood that that antibody is pathogenic. Certainly, if you're above, then there's a very high likelihood that the antibody is pathogenic. There are very rare cases where you can have a very high OD, but the serotonin release assay will be negative and the patient does not have clinical hit. Extremely rare, but that's where the serotonin release assay really helps you to make the diagnosis. You might ask, why is it important to make the diagnosis? Certainly for acute management, it's important, but for long-term management, it's even more important because patients may get exposed to heparin during their lifetimes. And if they have a history of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, it's very important to make the care providers and the patient aware of that so they can advocate for themselves to tell their providers that I have a heparin allergy. That's essentially how we label it in the medical record. Thank you. The benefits of this test really do provide benefits for patients and care of patients and really provide clinicians and care providers a more accurate understanding of what is going on with patients. That's extraordinary and so important. I am curious, how does this essay improve upon previous approaches? The previous approaches have relied heavily on the clinical diagnosis of HIT. And I remember years ago, prior to availability of the current generation of tests, we would have to make a clinical diagnosis and then we would have to start what we call empiric anticoagulants that are not heparin-like. Now, starting a, an alternative anticoagulant itself in a patient who's thrombocytopenic does put the patient at high risk of bleeding. So you want to try to minimize that alternative anticoagulant, clinch the diagnosis to make sure you really need the alternative anticoagulant. So that's why it's important to make the diagnosis. And then, of course, for the long-term management. At Mayo, we had introduced a functional test called the heparin-induced platelet aggregation test. We take the patient's blood, we expose it to normal donor platelets, and we mix it with heparin, and we look to see if those platelets aggregate. Now, it's a very specific test if it's abnormal. It's not as sensitive as a serotonin release assay, and it's very labor-intensive. Eventually, companies isolated the antibody, 
and then develop tests to detect the antibody. So that was a big advance in our understanding of the pathogenesis of HIT. And that also really helped in the diagnosis of HIT. And then we realized that a lot of patients have the antibody, but they don't truly have clinical HIT. And that's where the functional assay, which is called the serotonin release assay, came into practice. A challenge with the current version of serotonin release assay that's available in selected reference labs is it's heavily relies on radioactive serotonin and radioactivity is, is very difficult to handle. So that's where, although they're very reliable tests, we had to figure out how to do this with non-radioactive material. And that's how we developed our current generation of tests at Mayo using non-radioactive material. We essentially measure the amount of serotonin release by different techniques from platelets. Thank you. That is very helpful. So in the use of non-radioactive material, is there greater sensitivity? Is it more specific? Yes, that's an excellent question. We have found during our validation, some of the challenges we ran into, and probably anyone runs into in development of the serotonin release assay, is we're relying on normal donor platelets as a reagent. So you need to have a reliable donor pool. So when we started validating this test, we did not want to work with radioactive material. So we started looking for alternative methods to detect serotonin. And some of the early methods we tried were not sensitive enough. We were missing patients who we knew had hit. And so we relied on other chemical methods of detecting serotonin. Dr. Pruthi, what do you think has been one of the most interesting findings as you've gone through the process of developing and validating the essay? A very interesting finding is that we're discovering that the way we perform our serotonin release assay, it is very sensitive. The way we approach this is we have a serum bank from patients who we know had clinical hit. And then when we applied our method to detecting serotonin release from that patient's serum bank, we had a very high degree of sensitivity and also a very high degree of specificity. So we hope to publish these findings so that our clients can see how the performance characteristics of our assay. Other interesting findings are that we know that not all donors react to heparin platelet factor four. And so we really have to be selective in our donor pool as far as donating platelets. Dr. Pruthi, thank you again so much for your time and sharing of your expertise in regard to the serotonin release essay. We are excited about this test, it being a gold standard in how clinically important the test is as well. And we will close out today's session. Again, Dr. Pruthi, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.